Hi, I'm sat here at home as sadly some of our um, audio recording wasn't up to scratch um, this week and so I'll re-record some various bits and bobs and we'll splice them together and hopefully there'll be a sermon at the end. Um, we uh, we started off our time by just remembering that last week under Jephthah our image had been a red kite. We were looking at the big picture and then zooming in on three little episodes, three cameos. Um, this week with Samson we are taking uh, four themes through the story and seeing how they thread together. Um, but before we jump in, let's pray. Father, we do come to you expectantly. I'm thankful that you love to speak to your people. And so we pray that you would open our ears, um, that you might speak to us. But more than simply speaking, that by your spirit, you would help us to be those who obey. Um, help us not to be those who deceive ourselves by simply hearing. Um, but actually with your help to live it out. Amen. Uh, my word for Samson is ambiguous. It seems to me that much of his account is laden with ambiguity. And so actually he is very contemporary. He is the classic movie hero of our times because gone are the squeaky clean, perfect, faultless rescuers of times gone by. Now everyone has a backstory. Everyone has a dark side. But you know they'll get the job done and they never mind about various lines being crossed or the collateral damage along the way. Um, he's very contemporary. That is what our heroes are like. And so with Samson's story, it all starts off pretty well. Come back with me to chapter 13. Um, it's a classic Bible pattern in one sense. It's a type that we will see again and again and again. It's, it's hope in the place of hopelessness. We're met in um, 13 verse 2 with a woman unable to have children. Uh, a woman who indeed likes Sarah, the mother of the patriarch Isaac, a woman upon whom the hopes of a nation will ride for her offspring. But unlike Hannah, the mother of prophet Samuel, for example, she's not praying and crying out to the Lord. And unlike Mary, the mother of Jesus, she doesn't seem to be especially virtuous or trusting. We We just don't know with this woman. The story already feels a bit ambiguous. We're not quite sure what we're dealing with. We're not quite sure what she's like. The ambiguity continues because her son Samson is to be a Nazarite. That is one who is set apart for the Lord, usually for a time, for a season. And you can look it up later in number six if you want to see what the Nazarite vow was all about. But it was an extraordinary privilege. It was a a time of almost priestly devotion to the Lord for a select few. They were there were three stipulations for them. They were never to um, never to drink from the vine. They were never to cut their hair. They were never to be contaminated by a dead body, and and so they were to be set apart and useful for God. They were to be dedicated to Him. And so, in one sense, they are what Israel was to be. Uh, the nation of Israel was to be dedicated to the Lord, set apart for him, and so were the Nazarites. Uh, it just it was a particularly intense way for a few individuals. The, the volume, if you like, was turned right up. And so you see, I think what we get in Samson's account is that he reflects the nation. Because, you see, they have not been distinctive. They have not been set apart. There's a level of ambiguity with the nation of Israel. Have a look down at um, 13 verse 1, for example, and 
See if you can work out what's missing from 13 verse 1. Let me read. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. See what's missing? The thing that's missing is they do not cry out to him. Despite 40 years of captivity, despite being under the hand of the Philistines, they don't turn to God. It's almost as if they are just happy where they are, just blending in like a chameleon. And so God simply intervenes. And so just as there's ambiguity in Samson, flashes of courage and maybe some brilliance followed by folly and recklessness. So there is ambiguity in Israel. They are meant to be distinctive and different. They are meant to display something of their God to a world watching in, but instead they just blend in. They've had 40 years, four decades of slavery, but at least for them, for now, that's not a problem because they've not cried out to the Lord. Let's um, let's explore some of uh, Samson's ambiguity four themes that I'll trace through. The first one um, is sight. There'll be four S's that will hang the story around. First one is sight. Um, Next time we'll see this even more clearly, but the story does actually start with Samson. I don't want to steal Phil's thunder from next week, but just flick over the page briefly. In 17 verse 6, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And then flick to the end of the book in 21 verse 25, you get a very similar similar phrase. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And, and when you see that little phrase there, as they saw fit, think they did what was right in their own eyes. As some older translations and indeed some current ones say, that that's the words in the original. They did what was right in their own eyes. And actually Moses had warned them years before not to live like this. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, Edge of the Promised Land. Um, He had said, these are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given to you possessed. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit. That is, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Which means it's very relevant for our world, actually. In the West today, as we have largely walked out on our Judeo-Christian heritage, there's a lot of confusion as to what governs how we relate to each other, how we do ethics, how we treat each other and why. But we can be sure that subjective morality does not work. It is not okay for you to do you in you seeking to justify how you hurt other people or how you treat me. We can't just do what is right in our own eyes because it might be right in my own eyes to exploit you or to steal your wallet or to bop you on the nose. That doesn't work. And yet that is what life in Israel looks like at the time. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, why does that matter with Samson? Well, come to chapter 14, verse 1 to 3. And as we'll see in a bit, you meet the first of Samson's three female temptations. Let me read 14 verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and there he saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah now. Get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But... Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is the right one for me, or better, 
Get her for me, she is right in my eyes. It's the same words in 14 verse 7. Do you remember from last week, worship really matters. God had said not to intermarry with the surrounding nations because he knew that those surrounding nations would lead his people astray, lead their hearts astray. So, again, if you like a verse, Deuteronomy 7, don't intermarry with them, don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. Which means, as Samson says, Get me this Philistine wife, for she is right in my own eyes. It's not just about his eyes, it's not just about attraction, but it shows something of the condition of his heart. It shows something of what's going on inside him. He's been driven by what he wants, rather than by what God wants. He's doing what is right in his own eyes, as all of Israel was. And now just fast forward to the end of the story that Tom read for us. And you know, I'm not sure how much weight to put on this, but I'm going to fly my kite anyway. It is striking to me at the end of the story, at the end of the account, that his eyes are taken out by the Philistines. And it is striking to me that with his eyes removed, it is almost as if he can see better. It is almost as if he can be the rescuer he was meant to be. Largely, it's, there, it's only there that he acts like a kind of self-sacrificial rescuer. There's still ambiguity, because it's largely to do with uh, revenge that he wants to do it. But isn't it striking that when they remove his eyes, then he is more successful as a rescuer with the Philistines. So sight really matters. And before we're too quick to condemn Samson, isn't it hard to live by faith and not by sight? 2 Corinthians 5, 7, to choose to live God's way and not your way. I, I know that's a battle for many among us this morning. In all kinds of area of temptation or compromise or complication, and being countercultural, being radically different from the world around. It's hard, it's easier to blend in, as James was asking us at the beginning. What actually makes us look different from those around us? Would we be different? Are we different? Maybe like Samson, it's when it comes to relationships. We're driven by, by, by eyes, by hearts, rather than what the Lord says, or decisions over finances, or whatever it is. Fill in the blank for you. To, to, to follow what God says, rather than what our, our hearts or, or our our eyes or our heart would like, is really hard. So there is sight. Second one we've got is strength. We couldn't not have this thread, could we, this theme, because this is largely what Samson is known for. Um, his, his Nazarite vow, along with God's spirit at times, equipping him and endowing him with strength, means that he can conduct these massive kind of supernatural feats of power. And they seemingly, I think, get bigger and bigger and bigger as the story goes on, as you work your way through from 13 to 16. So just have a few examples. 14 verse 6, he, he tears a lion apart. 14 verse 19, there's a 
kind of stupid wedding celebration riddle that goes wrong, and he strikes down 30 men and steals their clothes and gives them to the people who have worked out the riddle. Chapter 15, he is freed from his binding, and he defeats thousands of Philistines with a donkey jawbone. We read 15 verse 14, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the spirit of the Lord came upon him powerfully, the ropes of his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands, and finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand. And then at chapter 16, 28, as, as Tom read, Delilah has given him up, He's gouged, they've gouged his eyes out, they've put him in Dagon's temple, and he collapses it on about 3,000. Remember, Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me, please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines in my two eyes. Here's that ambiguity again. God seems to have given Samson competence, but he doesn't seem to have a character to match that competence. He seems to have some sort of supernatural gifting but he doesn't steward that gifting well. He's not godly. And maybe we're kind of left scratching our heads slightly. How, why does the Lord give him these muscles, these abilities, if he's going to do that kind of stuff? And then I look at me and I look at us and think, well, hang on, isn't that the case that God graciously gives us so much? And we don't get it on the condition of how we will use it, it's up to us, largely, how we will steward the gifts that he gives us. I mean, you might be amazing at numbers. You might love maths. You might be great at finances, and yet you're siphoning off money from your workplace and heading for an extravagant holiday. He's made you good at numbers. How are you using that gift? Or multiply that out into all kinds of other blessings and ways that the Lord seems to bestow us with good things. Now, the thing is, with Samson, you get the volume turned right up. But everything we've been given from God is a blessing, is a gift. He is so generous to us. And so I wonder if Samson ought to make us just press pause and stop and ask the question, how am I using what he gives me? What am I doing with those things? How will I use this gift, this opportunity, my, my day, this breath, my time? Because it's easy to look at Samson and think, what were you doing, bud? And yet actually that reflects on us as well. We probably haven't got the strength of Samson. We probably haven't got the moral ambiguity of Samson. But we have been gifted and given competencies. And the question might be, well, how are we stewarding those things that he's given us? Second S is strength. The third one is sin. And we've already said that he is ambiguous. He lives by sight. He follows his heart in such a way that that is at odds with what we know of what God is like and what God would want. Actually, it is right the way through 13 to 16. There is this ritually unclean dead lion that he's murdered. And then... Bees live inside and there's honey and he gives them to his parents, but the lion was unclean. What's he doing giving honey from an unclean lion to his parents without them knowing? Well, then there are unclean foxes as well and he ties their tails together and sets them, sets them alight and puts them in the Philistine crops. 
that shouldn't have happened. Or the many, many, many dead bodies that he's near. And as, as a Nazarite, that shouldn't have happened. Really? You see his sin and his vengeance and his folly and his stupidity again and again and again. And we've already alluded, but his, his famous Achilles heel is his uh, love or lust for women. The whole story of his adult life is taken up with one of three different women. There's his Philistine wife in 14 to 15, the one who was good in his eyes. There's a prostitute in 16 verse 1 through to verse 3. Then there's Delilah in 16 verse 4 and onwards, and she will be his downfall. It's again interesting. He meets her in 16 verse 4 in the Valley of Sorek which it seems is named the Valley of Grapes. As a Nazarite, he shouldn't be there because wine and grapes were forbidden. It's as if the writer's just giving us a sort of a bit of a wink. This isn't going to go well. It's also very near to Felicia. So he, he really shouldn't be there. It's not clever to hang around there. And famously, the story hangs off her being in the pocket of the Philistines, trying to find out why he's so strong, as Tom read for us so well. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him, so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Uh, just a bit of quick maths as to how much money she's going to get, kind of back of an envelope, broad brushstroke style. Um, it's likely there were five Philistine rulers. There were five main towns in Philistia, and so five Philistine rulers, each one of them giving her 1,100 shekels. So that's 5,500 shekels in total. How much is a shekel, you say? That was my question too. But if you flick over to Judges 17 verse 10... It says that 10 shekels is one year's wage. So that means it's 110 years wages per leader, thus 550 years wages in total. Now, an average UK salary for 2021 was about £26,000. And if you multiply that by 550... I won't ask you to do the maths, but it's about 14 and a half million pounds, a.k.a. that's quite a lot of money. Uh, she loves money. But he loves her. Maybe he loves not being nagged by her as well, but he loves her. And so he ends up telling her how to weaken him. It sounds foolish, doesn't it? It sounds nonsensical. But, you know, when we are driven by our hearts... I guess we can make foolish and nonsensical decisions. As the, um, as the story rounds the final bend, chapter 16 with Samson, it is, it is dripping with irony as we find him in the temple of Dagon. Um, we've already seen he's morally weak and now he becomes physically weak. And we've already seen that he's spiritually blind in many ways and now he becomes physically blind. And we've already seen that he's a slave to his to his heart, to his desires, to his emotions. And now he becomes a real slave. He's wearing bronze shackles in 16 verse 21. And it was maybe inevitable, but Samson's sin was his downfall. 
there are always consequences for our compromise. But let's um, let's head on though to our final S. The final S being sovereignty. Do you see Samson forgot God? But God didn't forget Samson. What an encouragement that is. He he doesn't forget his judge. And so Samson pushes and the temple collapses. And so ends the story. But, you know, the the paradox of God's sovereignty has never been far from the surface through chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. We were. We were given a glimpse of it at the beginning, even as his, do you remember, his heart fixates on his first wife. Chapter 13, his parents say, must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? And Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's she's the right one for me. She's right in my eyes. But then verse four, we get it in brackets. His His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. It's a theme that we've seen again and again in weeks gone by. It's God's sovereign plans and purposes being worked out in and through and despite our mess and our murkiness, uh, despite our ambiguity. Despite the reality of what we're like, when the mask is removed and it's just us, And yet God works out his sovereign plans and purposes in such a way that he is not culpable. That it's still morally repugnant. And yet it's it's people rather than him. It's not his fault. And yet somehow he can redeem it and he can transform it and make something good and beautiful and new from it. So that it's even weaved into his sovereign purposes. We've we've seen it already, but we're going to go there again in Acts chapter 2. This is... This is the example par excellence in one sense. Peter preaching at Pentecost. This man, this Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan for knowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Were they evil and wicked men who are morally culpable? Yes. Was it God's foreknowledge and plan? Yes. How do those two fit together? Perhaps we'll ask him when we get there. But God is not blamed for it. And yet he's able to weave it in. Well, so here, God worked through Samson's sinful pursuit of this Philistine woman who, yeah, who he shouldn't have married. And yet he ties it in so that he raises up a judge to defeat the Philistines. And so even at the end, as it concludes, there's ambiguity. It's mostly about revenge in his eyes. He wants to pay them back for his eyes, and yet God works through Samson's sinful pursuit of revenge and brings victory, his plans and purposes. Even in the mess, God is still at work. Isn't that just really encouraging? What is your mess at the moment? What do you wish was gone from your life at the moment? Even in the mess, God is still at work. 
So Samson's sight, Samson's strength, Samson's sin, and yet God's sovereignty over it all. But before we finish, he is, Samson is, as all the judges are, signposts to the kind of leader that the people of God really need. And you know the answer. Come back with me to chapter 13, verse 5. He, that is Samson, will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines, or again, slightly better perhaps, he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. It is striking that while Samson would deliver them from the Philistines, so another young woman in centuries to come will be visited by another angel to announce another miraculous birth. But this rescuer will not simply begin to deliver, but will finally deliver. And this rescuer will not simply deliver from the Philistines or the Romans or any other human enemy but rather from a greater, more insidious enemy or enemies, the enemies of sin and suffering and death. And while Samson was morally ambiguous and messy and we're just shrugging slightly, doing what was right in his own eyes, so Jesus, God the Son, fully obeyed God the Father. As he takes on flesh, he follows the plan their plan. And indeed, the only sin that he knew, the only sin that Jesus knew, was the sin of his people, whom he willingly bore their punishment for on the cross, in love, being punished in our place. Indeed, in the the ultimate place of self-sacrifice. He is a rescuer, like Samson, but he is so much better than Samson. He is just the kind of rescuer we need. In a bit, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Not just yet, but in a bit. And so it's really appropriate that we do that because it's there that we can have an opportunity to to focus upon and to feed feed afresh upon the body of our Lord broken for us and his blood shed for us. And we can consider again his, his loving sacrifice his obedience to the cross for his people. And indeed, it's through his sacrifice that we have life. Let's trust him. And let me pray now for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so much better than Samson. Thank you that there is none of the moral ambiguity. Thank you that you didn't do what was right in your own eyes, but you fully obeyed your Father. Thank you that you've delivered your people from a much greater enemy than the Philistines or the Romans, but you've delivered us from sin and suffering and death. Thank you that as you were punished for our sin, thank you that we can have life. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us to to trust you in the brokenness and the mess of our world at the moment. Help us to trust that you are 
working out your sovereign plans and purposes, whether at the international level or the very personal level. Lord, it's easy in one sense to, to pray that now, but we pray that you would help us through the week. And as we face those things that would, we were rather not there, we would trust you in your sovereign plans and purposes. Might we know the reality of your presence and your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to carry on praying. Tom's going to come and lead us. So do remain in an attitude of prayer.